having a Dutch mum, she was always very liberal and open when it came to kind of sex and drugs. You posted a Facebook post and as the story goes, you went to sleep and something like 65,000 shares the next day. I think there's been a, an active smear campaign against immigration and this small group of vulnerable people in the UK. Asylum seeker. Asylum means safety. Someone seeking safety. Someone who's had to leave their country, not out of choice or for economic reasons. Welcome back to the Evolving Door podcast. I've got another great uh, guest this week who's going to share their journey and also those moments where they've stepped through the Evolving Door, where they've had those little shifts in their thinking and hopefully a clearer picture on the way forward. So today my guest is Jazz O'Hara. Um, it's exciting because I interviewed Jazz probably four or five years ago now um, and I'm going to chat to her again and hear what she's up to. She's an amazing person. She... Um, is a millennial when you, you you know you see her on camera you'll see she's the, the the trendy kind of proper millennial who's really in the world of social media but she's used it in brilliant ways to really shine a light on some really important issues particularly the refugee crisis um and raising awareness and also funds and support for that but also really what she's about is kind of getting at the human stories behind the headlines so welcome jazz great to see you again it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. That's awesome. So last time we chatted, we were at the Institute of Fundraising and, and they were looking at, they wanted to hear from you about the innovative ways that people like yourself were using social media to raise funds for important stuff. Um, and yeah. here we are today having a much broader chat. And the world has changed so much since then, hasn't it? So much has happened. I know, I know. Because that, that's kind of like I was thinking, how long ago was it? And I was like, well, it was definitely at least three years because we've sort of had three years wiped off the slate almost in some ways. Exactly. At least um, two of the, those do not count, I feel. <laughs> I keep yeah, I keep yeah. seeing people that I haven't seen for years and I play this game where I'm like, oh, how long have we not seen each other? And then I think, actually, I'm going to stop playing that now because two of them, you know, we can exactly, as you say, wipe clean from the slate. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So before I dive into your sort of early life and stuff, I'd love to just kind of kick us off with two simple questions. First of all is, at the moment, what makes you personally happy? What brings you joy at the moment? What a lovely question to start with. And I am full of joy right now because I've just been on a big trip. I've been away for three months and I'm back at my mum and dad's house temporarily but what makes me very happy <laughs> is hanging out here with my little brothers who I will talk a little bit about later but they the three that live here at the moment I have four foster brothers and uh, three of them are here at home and they're from Libya Sudan and Eritrea and conversations with them bring me joy and make me happy I learn so much from the daily interactions that we have in this house yeah yeah, it sounds like a, a really uh, interesting house because you've got so many different perspectives and and so on. Um, and of course, we'll we'll learn more about your parents and everything and how they came to be people that had such a a welcoming, open arms, you know, for for to take young people like that in. And um, on the flip side, what currently kind of gets you angry? What gets you upset? 
Oh, if I get too much into politics and what's actually going on in our immigration policies at the moment, I get frustrated and upset what we're seeing with these, this news about Rwanda, um, the response that we've seen to the situation in Ukraine, which is wonderful. But having worked in refugee response for seven years, it's frustrating to see that this isn't extended to other groups and hasn't been. <clears throat> So that at the moment is frustrating and upsetting and, and, and quite heartbreaking, really. Yeah, definitely can relate. I was going to ask you about that a bit later, because like, like you, I've been thinking that a lot recently, that it's wonderful to see the incredible solidarity and support for Ukraine. And it's great that at least young people get to see an example of a good response, but it really mm. hasn't been consistent um, at all. Um, so more more on that in, in a bit. But so just tell me a little bit about growing up, because uh, what was your house like? What was your experience like? And maybe what were some of those seeds do you think that potentially were there that, you know, made you be someone who actually decided after watching the TV headlines that I actually am going to, you know, just head off and go to the to the, the jungle in Calais? What, what was it like growing up? Well, I always grew up in a big family. I was the oldest of four kids and we traveled quite a lot. So when I was a kid, we moved to Australia when I was about four and moved back to the UK when I was seven. And I had this breakthrough actually a couple of years ago, this kind of epiphany moment that took me back to that time when I was about seven and recognized that there was actually a seed planted then, which now kind of feeds into a lot of my work. And I guess, you know, because of that moving around and because of kind of coming back to the UK and feeling like I was coming home, because when I was in Australia, I was the odd one out because I had a Dutch mom and an Irish English dad and I had a different accent. And then, you know, going back to the UK, I felt like, okay, I'm going back to where I belong. But by that point, I had an Australian accent and I went to this little <laughs> village school and I was the odd one out. And I think... I really recognize the feeling of being the new kid and being new somewhere and not being necessarily welcomed. And I'm not absolutely not um, relating my experience to the experiences of the people that I'm working with now, but that underlying feeling of feeling yeah. different, feeling- Other, like maybe other. Not invited, the other, exactly that. I think that, a lot of us can relate to that. And I think that, you know, that is something that really drives the work that I do now. Mm. And do you think also having kind of parents from different uh, countries, maybe, I don't know if they were culturally that different, did that, how did that sort of feed into your growing up? Yeah, perhaps. I think my parents were always very open-minded and I appreciate that I grew up in a space where we had conversations about, you know, nothing was off the table. Having a Dutch mum, she was always very liberal and open when it came to kind of sex and drugs and the conversations that like you didn't necessarily want to have with your parents when you're a teenager. <laughs> but actually now, you know, it's made for a good thing that there are no topics that are kind of untouched and having four foster brothers at home from four different countries is mm. you know it makes for interesting dinner conversation and there are a lot of different opinions and backgrounds and religions and upbringings and to discuss mm. some of those issues that come up between us with these different perspectives in an open loving respectful space 
is definitely the key I think to us all kind of living in in harmony yeah it's it's it definitely it's I suppose it's having um somebody said recently that uh, the sign of an advanced society is almost that people can have grown-up conversations with differences of opinion without falling out you know um where uh, did your mom and dad uh, foster pe- young people uh, before you kind of had your um, moment where you went to Calais or was that something, what, how, what was the timeline? No, that actually happened after. So I can tell you the story a little bit if you like, and that will kind of explain the timeline. So my yeah, yeah, youngest yeah. biological brother, Finn, there was four of us, as I said, two girls, two boys, and Finn was turning 18 and moving out of home. And I think my mum and dad, you know, they had this fear of having no kids at home anymore, which never manifested because I'm still, I'm here now and it's a house full. <laughs> but they l- were looking into the process of what they could do to kind of avoid that from happening, adoption, fostering. And it came quite clear quite quickly that there were a lot of unaccompanied children arriving to where they live in Kent in the south of of England via the Calais jungle refugee camp. And so they were open to taking on an older child or a boy or someone who didn't speak English. And these were some of the things that some families perhaps were less keen to do. Let me Mm. just turn that noise off. Yeah. So... As they were going through the process, which was quite long and rigorous, I decided to try and find out more. I had this curiosity about where my new brother or sister might be coming from. And I went to Calais and that was the journey that really changed the course of my life. I went to the jungle. I met incredible people. The reality of the situation was so different from the media portrayal that I felt this kind of innate need to bridge that gap and I wrote about it on Facebook and that was kind of the start of the Worldwide Tribe which is our organization and online community now that continues to seven years later do everything we can to support refugees in various different ways uh, and that's changed a lot over the years so I can talk about that too yeah yeah the timeline was that it was actually it was actually just after um, I first went to Calais that my first brother Mez joined our family, and seven years later he's still here with us. Amazing. Well, the, but the interesting thing is is that um, your parents were already looking into it, and it's in a, in a way that's fascinating. So I I you, you know that it maybe that's what sparked some of your interest in learning more, like you say about who are these people, and you know. Who, you know where might my, my brother come from and so on that's that's really amazing um you did mention that you went and um i remember it was a huge thing in the media at the time um what what year was it again 2015 2015 yeah it was massive and um a lot of negative uh, media um and then as you say you you posted a, a facebook post and as the story goes you went to sleep and something like 65,000 shares the next day. I mean, what, just talk us through that. I'm sure you, you know, were on Facebook, but nothing like that had ever happened. How was that? What was the experience like Um, now having, being able to look back, like, was it kind of crazy for you on a personal level? Yeah, absolutely. It was like totally overwhelming because it really changed the course of my life. You know, I worked in in fashion at the time for an uh, an ethical brand um, that produced fair trade organic uh, underwear in India. 
and I couldn't concentrate on Is that pants my for poverty. Job. Pants for poverty, exactly. <laughs> I know it Ben. Was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Oh yes, Ben was the th- actually came with me the first time I went to the jungle. Amazing. We did lots of crazy trips to to India together before that, so I felt like he was a good person to yeah to to go with because we we traveled a lot together before yeah so yeah you were saying that the the you know you woke up and it, and it was kind of crazy so kind of what was that next uh, year like in terms of obviously the i suppose you know to to coin a cliche but like the good the bad and the ugly of it like what 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 was what were some of the highlights and some of the challenges well i started spending more and more time in calais and I met some of the most incredible people that I've ever met with the most heroic stories that I've ever heard. So in that sense, it was beautiful. And I was very grateful to have the opportunity to experience the Calais jungle as it was at its peak before it was demolished in 2016. They were the highs. But the lows were that I was also opened, my my eyes were opened to a world that I knew nothing about previous to going to Calais that first time. I didn't know anything about refugees or immigration or the asylum system. And I started to learn the injustice of it and what so many people were experiencing in this world. I guess I'd grown up in a bit of a bubble before going there. And that was the ugly and the ugly was ugly. And once you see it, you can't unsee that and you can't unknow it. And I changed a lot and I had to mourn that kind of previous naive version of myself. I remember that first Christmas, celebrating Christmas as we always do around our table with a feast in front of us. And I, I'd changed the situation, the circumstances hadn't changed. You know, it was something that we'd done every year, but I was seeing it with new eyes through the eyes of my friends that were literally an hour away in Calais, freezing cold, sleeping in tents in the mud. And that new knowledge meant that, you know, I was never the same again. And I took on that responsibility. I felt that responsibility to use that information to create as much impact around this as I could I didn't take that lightly and I felt that on my shoulders and I continue to carry that on my shoulders yeah yeah it's amazing and um you you were I mean quite successful in the way that you did it using media and social media in particular and so on so what what did you kind of learn from that what were some of the challenges because I know when we spoke last time there was a lot of um almost what you would call like independent fundraising happening through social media and stuff. But I think then, um, so the opportunity was huge and tell us about some of the successes, but there was also challenges, wasn't there? Cause Facebook then said, well, individuals can't collect money for stuff because we don't know if it's really going to go to the right place and all of that. So what were some of the hurdles and things that you had to overcome as you were moving through that, that experience? Um, I think the main hurdle was less about kind of the logistics and technicalities of fundraising, but more about people's attention spans. That In 2015, people were 
affected and impacted by things like those images of Alan Kurdi washed up on the shore in Turkey. I think that they shook the world and suddenly we had the world's attention. But then the media cycle moved on and people's attention spans moved on. And we didn't see that again until last year when the Taliban took over Afghanistan. And again, we saw this kind of surge of support and empathy for refugees. And then again, it quietened down. And again, this year, we've seen it in response to what's happening in Ukraine. So it's very tricky to maintain a consistent level of empathy within our society because people do have a short attention span. And I think social media is our way, our door, our platform to trying to engage people in new and innovative ways. And we do that through making short films, infographics, accessible content that's easy for people to relate to or read on the go. And that's changed over the years. You know, people used to have longer where they would actually sit and watch a three minute film on social media. People don't do that anymore. If it's longer than 15 seconds, you've lost them. So the podcast is our most recent way of sharing stories in a way that they deserve to be shared, giving them the attention and the time that they deserve. And our our podcast is called Asylum Speakers. And it's been a beautiful way to platform and highlight uh, some of the incredible people that I've met along the way. Yeah, I mean, that's um, so true, isn't it? Like, even from 2015 until now, social media has changed massively, hasn't it? Like, there's just so Mm. much more content and so many different platforms and so on that it's almost, um, I think it's a bit overwhelming like it's it's hard and also people feel sometimes that they're doing something by liking something or you know which obviously has some kind of impact but like you know I've done my bit because I've posted a photo about it or whatever do you know what I mean so like what are your thoughts on 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 moving things from social media then into action and and as as you've been in this landscape what, what what are your thoughts on that well You know what? I think that we do have to provide levels for people to make action accessible to everybody that maybe you don't have the capacity or ability to go and put up tents in Calais or welcome people on the shores of Lesbos and maybe don't have the money to donate. But we all do have the ability to start a conversation with our friends and to share a post and to amplify these voices and to educate ourselves. So I do think that there is a benefit in clicking like, writing a comment, sharing something to your community because that's how they're the first steps right they're the first steps and I really am an advocate for like let's all do what we can whatever that looks like and it looks different Mm. for everyone when people message me and they say how can I help I kind of turn the question back and I, I encourage people to look within to consider what they might have to offer because For me, it took me a while to kind of figure that out. I recognise that where my skills lie are within communicating a story through the podcast or through our social platforms, much more so than kind of being boots on the ground. Yes, that informs my uh, ability to share stories, but putting up tents in Calais, I I mean, on, on various levels, I'm 
pretty shit at putting up tents and <laughs> there's probably people that are a lot better than I am at that um, and also a lot of people that are kind of more local to certain c- circumstances and situations that would be better placed to support on the ground than me um, so when I do spend time on the ground it is to inform what I can do on a larger scale online and mm when uh, it comes to kind of advocacy and awareness in this space yeah yeah I think what really stood out from that from me is um is I think if we can I I agree with you entirely any any step is a good step but like I think if you can get people like you say educating themselves and having conversations with their friends about it then I think you, you can really people can sort of um um it becomes personal, as you say, to whatever extent. But I think mm-hmm. it just goes that little bit deeper, doesn't it, when you talk with your friends. And hopefully your friends have different opinions and, you know, you, you get to really sort of uh, scratch beneath the surface a little bit. Um, I um, I hope that you understand this in the right way. It's not, it's not meant in a bad way at all. But, like, you're, you're a sort mm-hmm. of, as I said in the intro, a very um, – sort of trendy, young, kind of fashion conscious, kind of Instagrammable kind of person. And that's brilliant. <laughs> and I, <laughs> But I think in a way, a bit like uh, Jay Shetty we had on here, the way you do things is brilliant and what you're doing is brilliant. But I feel like in, an, in the age of media and social media, sometimes these other things, the aesthetics do seem to uh, help um young people to be attracted, at least in the, initially. Um, and I just wondered what your thoughts were on the importance of within the media landscape kind of packaging stuff or, you know, so um, making it um, an easy in for people. And I just, I screenshotted a couple of headlines. So, you know, finding the stories, not the headlines. If your neighbor's hungry, your pizza's not going to taste as good. Um, Why have we all stopped talking about the refugee crisis? You know, uh, all of that kind of stuff. It's those kind of catchy phrases or little memes or kind of, things that were that are within the popular culture that are often the 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 way that um an idea can can kind of carry further and i just wondered what your thoughts were on that if you've ever considered it um yeah i mean unfortunately i think we do live in a world where and we've seen this with ukraine right that like we respond when we relate in some way when we can kind of see ourselves in something when something feels kind of close to home and that emotion comes through that that connection and I Mm. feel that unfortunately the rapper is hugely important because we want people to listen we want people to be engaged we want to grab people and you know if they're not immediately kind of grabbed then like however important the message is it's not gonna get through so we really do do our best to make things accessible and bite-sized and shareable and easy for people so that there's no excuse not to listen (laughs) Yeah, yeah yeah no exactly it's kind of it's a bit like you know if you had um I remember when I was young once, uh, my, my parents and grandparents were trying to give me um, a tablet. I wasn't well. And they put it inside, you know, ice cream. They put it inside this and that. And I, unfortunately, I kept uh, finding the tablet and not, not eating it. <laughs> but the idea was that, um, you know, put it in something tasty and it would it would just kind of go down. So I... I um, exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. 
I kind of grapple with it a little bit myself, but I totally get the principle, hundred percent. Um, I just find it. Um, I just find I don't know something about it. I um, I struggle with a little bit sometimes. I think that that kind of idea that. What do you struggle um, with? Tell me. Let's think, unpick it. Yeah, I think it's the um, the idea that um, it's like that that concept: never get in the way of a good story. It's almost like the in the media landscape. It's almost like it doesn't really matter whether it's true or not. It's just like how do you know what I mean? It can become a bit like where um, you it can sometimes feel unauthentic to me, um, um, and I just feel like it is naive, and I know it's foolish of me and, and sort of silly, but I just sort of feel like people should be able to take stuff on face value, and that should be enough. I guess it's maybe. Um, I know it's not the world that we live in, <laughs> so I mean, it's kind of stupid of me to think it, but there's just a part of me that kind of wishes it was like that, I guess. Well, there's another part to that, Ravenel, I think, that is, you know, it's, it's very, very important to still share with integrity and to still mm. recognise your reason why and to still not put anything out there that feels sensationalist or exploitative or like absolutely, I totally agree with you that like these are people's stories and lives and I 100% could not be more respectful of that. So mm. there's a line, definitely. And there's no way that we would put the story before the person in the midst of it. And we work very closely alongside people to share their stories in ways that they feel comfortable with. Mm. Um, but I think that, yeah, there's an, another piece to that, which is like, okay, so how do we actually do this story justice by making sure that people listen, yeah. but not un in any way um, acting out of integrity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, that would undermine everything that we're doing and that it's really important to connect in with that time and time again. And as I say, like, that's what I really appreciate about being here right now with my brothers is that we can nut these things out and that I have three people here in this house with lived experience because I recognise that I don't have lived experience of this kind of journey or situation. Mm. So we not these things out together when it feels appropriate, when it feels right, when they're keen, when they're up for it. And if they're not absolutely fine as well, because sometimes I understand that like, you know, they don't need, want to revisit or yeah, talk about yeah, yeah. issues that feel personal and emotional to them that they have an emotional uh, connection to. So yeah, there are many levels to that. And I don't, I totally hear you. Yeah. I think, um, have they ever um, challenged you or or sort of, because um, as you say, in your journey, uh, I, I love what you said. And I, I, I know that you're, in, you know, you have great integrity through and through and you work so closely with people on the ground. But have you ever had a lesson where you maybe somebody kind of said, well, actually, it's not quite like that. Or, um, or maybe, you know, I know what you're doing is good, but like, here's a little piece of information from our perspective that might be helpful or anything like that some of the along the way have you got any of those lessons yeah all the time like you know I have been learning for seven years as I said when I moved into this space I didn't know anything about this situation and I've been very open to learning and I think that you know we all have to put our hands up and say that 
we're constantly in a learning space right and if somebody does challenge me or advise me then I'm very grateful and I think how you deal with that is to say thank you I take it on board and I'll be better next time to do the best that you can until you know better Mm. and then do better Um, so an example of that that happened just recently actually is I was sharing a story of uh, a young Eritrean boy it was actually in tribute to his life because he had taken his own life after not being believed with his age and having real troubles with his asylum process once making it to the UK Mm. a really heartbreaking story and an important one to hear Um, and um, it's actually something that's happening quite a lot at the moment that once people make it here the difficulties that they face are so immense that actually it's it's more of a a painful chapter than the the journey itself or, or what they've left behind and and anyway I I I was I shared this story and somebody responded and actually advised me to use the term take his own life instead of the term committed suicide because that could be triggering for some people it might suggest that he had committed a crime and this uh so these semantics are something that i i do think are important that you know the word migrant has actually got a lot of negativity around it through uh, our media and i'm quite careful to actually really encourage the use of person people not to label someone a refugee because it's a matter of of circumstances or something that happens to you it's not who you are you are not a refugee and that is now your identity you know so um absolutely you know that's just a little example that i can think of right now of something that happened recently that i take on board and that I'm, i'm learning every day and you know, another example is that my little brothers, there are four of them and two of them are really keen to share their stories and they come with me to talks and they they want people to know about the situation in their country and the experience they had trying to get to this country. And the other two don't. The other two want to be living their lives as normal and be normal teenage boys. And, you know, two ends of the spectrum and I have the utmost respect for both and everything in between. Yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, yeah, I've, I've been I heard some podcasts recently about um, suicide and they were making that similar point, because I think in in some countries or at least in in the past, I think it it may have actually been considered a crime. Um, um, yeah. And actually, it's interesting that you you mentioned as well about migrant, because I wanted to ask you about that, because in the media, um, Obviously, they play on, you know, levers, mm. our biases and different things like that. And obviously the word, I, I, I don't know how much the public are really understand the difference maybe between, you know, a migrant or a refugee or a person, as you say, a person who's going through those experiences currently. Um, so what, what are some of the things you feel you've learned over the years about how those terms are used, how the media are the role the media has to play and also what do you think it is behind our the biases and the fears that people have um that do make people respond to that kind of media input in, in a negative way potentially well, that's a big question so the first part <clears throat> i think there's been a an active smear campaign against 
immigration and this small group of vulnerable people in the UK. And, you know, we've been scapegoating migrants. Um, But there's a cognitive dissonance there. It doesn't make sense to me because the term migrant, I mean, where do you live, Ravenel? Uh, I live just about 12 miles outside Birmingham. And where are you from? Uh, Dublin in Ireland. So you're a migrant, right? But (laughs) to me, there's there's this like weird disparity between like, migrants and migrants you know like I you wouldn't necessarily be referred to as a migrant or seen as a migrant and anyone Mm -hmm. moving from one place to another is a a migrant yeah and the people that I'm working with are refugees and asylum seekers and just to for anyone who is new to these terms as I was when I came into this space you know again we've lost the meaning of asylum seeker asylum means safety someone seeking safety someone who's had to leave their country not out of choice or for economic reasons because they've had to to move um, to find safety because their life is in danger and a refugee is someone who has actually been granted that status as a refugee and then has rights which an asylum seeker is waiting for so is in the process of seeking their asylum so it's a difficult system and a very tricky one to actually, you know, get your refugee status. And once you do, you've had to really prove uh, it's it's a kind of guilty until proven innocent scenario in our, our current asylum system. And uh, I can't remember the rest of your question. <laughs> Sorry, it wasn't. It had many parts. <laughs> yeah. um, so we're talking about, yeah, we we're talking about fear, weren't we? We were talking about fear. Yeah, I just I think I, I suppose from the government's point of view, there, uh, I, I imagine their thing is is that they that process they put them through is to theoretically to ensure that they are going to be a positive contribution to the country. But let's say they have their policies and processes. But in terms of how the media interfaces with the public around these issues. Do you think that it's just partly newspapers trying to sell newspapers or do you think it's driven also to to back up sort of the immigration um, policies? And then why, even if they are spreading kind of this fear mongering, what is it in us as as individuals that kind of responds to it rather than questions it? Good question. And this is really kind of underpins the whole point of our work, right? To see ourselves in each other, to recognize ourselves in each other. I really believe that once you meet my little brother Mez from Eritrea Mm -hmm. and you hear his story of leaving Eritrea when he was 13 to flee compulsory military service and cross the Mediterranean and the Sahara Desert and live in the Calais jungle and hide underneath the Eurotunnel train to make it to the UK, age 13 on his own. And you meet him and he tells you this story. You recognise this kid, yeah, this kid that all he wanted was the same things that every other kid in the UK just takes for granted. And you re- you realise that there's no, there's nothing to be scared of there. There's no threat there. But I think it's easy to kind of use this small group of of, of vulnerable people as scapegoats as a distraction technique as uh, a kind of like look over there like it's their fault when I I totally believe that that is not the case and you know when people in our country are dissatisfied not heard not feeling like their needs are met not feeling like they have what they need then perhaps Mm. it is easy for them to kind of look um, down to refugees and, and migrants and asylum seekers mm. as 
the people to blame when I feel that they should be looking up at the people making these policies, at the people at the top much more. Mm. So, yeah, it's a, it's a big question. <laughs> Just to think about it a little further, like, so oftentimes, um, you know, as you say, people who are dissatisfied. So, you know, sometimes it might be the working classes who are, you know, maybe have unemployment in their own family and, and whatever. And it's mm -hmm. easy to say, oh, these people, you know, the classic that we've always heard for many years, they're taking our jobs, etc. But what about even very middle class, even wealthy, you know, educated people, all core stratas of society, um, I think are still affected by, I, maybe it, this is what I want to try and unpick with you. Is it fear of the other? Is it um, fear of, you know, uh, maybe they haven't traveled and are not exposed or they haven't heard these stories. Like, what do you think it is that doesn't make people just go, just get it straight away? Or is it fear of the unknown? Is it that when you've never met somebody who has this lived experience that you kind of create something in your mind? Like when you watch a film and you haven't seen the monster, the monster in your imagination is... The idea of the monster, isn't it? Yeah. Could ever be... Yeah, I mean, like, how many, take a moment listening to this to just think about how many Syrians or Afghans or Eritreans that you know. And unfortunately, because we have such a small percentage of, of refugees in the UK, I imagine that that number is, is fairly small. I mean, it makes sense that it would be fairly small for most people listening uh, if they live in the UK and in most of the you know it's only really in 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 cities that we see more diversity uh and more uh refugees uh, within within communities but mm. i i feel that it's that fear of 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 exactly that the unknown because we don't seem to have that fear around ukrainian refugees right yeah i wanted to come on to that next i mean it's uh you know back to our point about the simplifying it down to the wrapper, you know, if we wanted to be mm -hmm. crude, you know, the, the idea of the Ukrainians is they're, they're kind of white. They're sort of, you know, maybe you could even simplify it further European. in the media. They might say blonde haired, blue eyed. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that's what I mean. It's that sort of fickle nature to it perhaps because most people don't know any Ukrainians either. They've never been to Ukraine. They have no connection to Ukraine. They've got, they know nothing about Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Um, um, so can we simplify it that it's as simple as on one level, just that some of them are brown and some of them aren't? And, you know, I mean, what, how else could we potentially explain it? Well, what do you think? I mean, I don't think I mean, that there are... like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the writing's on the wall really, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, and that's, but that, that's, I, I struggle with that because, um, you know, of course we know co politics is, you know, complicated and under, underhand and this and that. But at the same time, when you're a person like you or me who are trying to do, put out good into the world and trying to see the common mm -hmm. humanity and the, the connection between us all, the, the thought that it, it's kind of as simple as that is, is, a, is a little horrifying. Um, it's heartbreaking and it's yeah. it's so uh, 
exhausting and frustrating you're absolutely right because you think like it's 2022 how how is this so blatant how is this happening before our eyes and it's clear and it's there for all to see and it's it's still exists like come on how have we not got past this by now um yeah i mean especially the same i've come back from the ukrainian border and it was painful honestly because it's emotional it's heartbreaking what people in ukraine are going through oh my god like absolutely they deserve the world's resources to be at their doorstep and for us to open our doors and our arms and our hearts as do every other person nationality religion race who are persecuted in this way who are living in circumstances and situations that are dangerous and scary and you know in in war um being persecuted i feel that there are there is such a disparity between you know and you can see it in legally as plain as like in black and white that as a there is a there's a host program in the uk to host ukrainian refugees to house them you get financially uh, supported in doing so um, there is a process that you can go through there are forms that you fill out but none of that exists in Afghanistan in Syria in these places that in have been dealing with this situation for years mm. and like 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 um, we I had some friends over yesterday and um, we talked about this a little bit and we were you know on the bright side saying at least there even though it's not consistent there is with the ukrainian response there is an example to young people of mm-hmm. of a positive response and it as you say it's amazing to see how much um generosity uh, open heartedness and all of the qualities that we would hope in a world where people's are evolving and people are seeing the humanity in others. Um, so in one way, it's great to see it. Like, it's really heartwarming to see it, but it's just very inconsistent, you know, and that's that's the bit that's, um, as you say, really difficult to kind of get your head around. Um, mm-hmm. I think um, just maybe, uh, you told briefly the story of your of your little brother, but just tell us one or two other stories uh, of the the refugees from you know whether it's Syria or Afghanistan or whatever, so we can really, you know, so let's take this opportunity to to understand a little better um, who who are some of those people and what's some of their journey. Okay, sure. So maybe I should take a little bit more time to tell you about my little brother Mez. Um, yeah. Although actually, I probably did. I probably I probably did tell you the kind of craziest parts of his journey already but unfortunately but he's go not... into some detail because you skipped no. over it I, I know you've said it many times but like crossing the sahara desert crossing the ocean you know it's mm-hmm. it's i mean that's unbelievable like yeah maybe just tell us a little bit more kind of the the, the steps along his journey sure well mez is a great example of somebody who has just incredible resilience and perseverance and strength of character to have experienced that. You know, he left his country with two of his best friends. Hang on a second. Okay, sorry, are you busy? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> See you later. No worries. I will do. <laughs> 
it's lunchtime, you see. So <laughs> yeah, okay. my mum's well, checking on what I'm going to make lunch. <laughs> hmm? I won't keep it too um, Yes. Go, go for it. <laughs> um, so well, I was talking about Mez and yeah. how he is just absolutely for me like the biggest inspiration because he decided made a very difficult decision to leave everything that he knew behind him in his village when he was 13 when the army came to conscript him he knew that he didn't want to go into the army because his dad was already in prison for fleeing the army and his older brother was in the army it's compulsory military service in his country under a dictatorship that's been in power for 30 years it's this is just shit that we can't even imagine right like you're basically going to kill or be killed and all he wanted to do, he always says, is, is hold a pen and not a gun to go to school, to like have the things that are teenagers here in the UK, like, as I say, don't even think twice about. So the army came to his village, him and two friends ran, not knowing, you know, that they would never, ever go back. They left with literally the clothes on their backs, no money. Mez wasn't even wearing proper shoes, just a pair of flip flops that he'd actually borrowed from his mum that were too big for him. He's never seen his mum since then, you know, like he That's didn't know that I, I yeah, he, he would not see her again after that day. It was just a spontaneous decision to run away in fear. And then they crossed the border into Ethiopia. Ethiopia and Eritrea were at war at the time, so he couldn't contact his mum from there. And uh yeah, so he continued the journey continue to try trying to find somewhere that was safe for him and I think that's a common misconception that people think that refugees should stay in the first safe country and I say that in inverted commas because what does that mean right what does that mean like safe to you or I like we might see France or Greece as a safe country because we visit there and we go there on our holidays but that's not necessarily somewhere that Mez had the opportunity to go to school, to live in a family, to not live in fear of deportation back to his death. And that's not safe, right? So he continued until he found somewhere that he could have those basic needs covered. He carried on from Sudan. He crossed the Sahara Desert. It took him over two weeks. His his friend was left behind in the desert. Um, and and the smugglers don't stop. You know, you're driving crazily fast on a on a pickup truck through the desert and if you fall from it which happened to his friend then that's it that's it they they don't how did he um how did he um, pay the smugglers or what do they want in return he spent months uh in sudan before crossing the desert doing bits of work six months he spent there the whole journey took him more than a year um earning some money working for free for the smugglers to try and pay for his trip. And he was also able in Sudan to call his family back home who scraped together everything they could from neighbours, friends, family members to, to pay for that because it's, it's huge amounts of money that we're talking as well. And the other misconception is that people should take legal routes, right? There are no legal routes. There is no visa office that Mez could have gone to in Eritrea to apply to come to the UK. There's no option for him that doesn't exist. So he had no choice and no alternative. And if there was a choice or an alternative, people would not be making these journeys. Like no one does that for fun yeah. or if they've got another option. 
So yeah, after the Sahara, it was the Mediterranean. We know what that looks like. You know, he was at sea for days. His boat capsized. He couldn't swim. I mean, it, this is crazy. I, I should have him here to talk about it, really. But um, yeah. and then once he made it to Europe, you know, you, you think that that looks safe, but people are being deported all the time back to. In the UK, we deport people and have done until recently back to Afghanistan. My Afghan brother's asylum was denied and he got a date where he would be sent back to Kabul. And, you know, we've all seen what's happened in Kabul in the last year. Like, mayors continued until we made it to the UK because it was the highest opportunity or chance of him actually being granted asylum. And luckily he did. And yeah, he's lived with us for the last seven years and been to school and done his exams and learned English and been voted prom king and now he works as a delivery driver for Just Eat um, and and as much money as he can to send back to his family. That's wonderful that he can um, that he can help you know send money back and help his mom and his family as well I mean it must be mm-hmm. a great feeling for him to 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 be arrive somewhere safe but also to then still be able to to help them um, just tell us though because you know um the other day we went swimming and my one of my sons he still can't swim without armbands and stuff and just for a second one of his friends mm-hmm. didn't realize and pulled him in just for like literally a second and he nearly he got such a shock so i can't imagine you know coming across uh, the mediterranean in a boat and capsizing and having to hold on to something and not being able to swim just terrifying and but then uh, you mentioned on the eurostar how did he how did he manage to um to hold on underneath Underneath the Eurotunnel train. I lost you for a second then, but I think that's Sorry, what you yeah, said. the train. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he um he did. I mean, he hid underneath um until the train started to move and then he jumped into the freight train. Um and you know, it goes super, super fast, the Eurostar. And um yeah, it was a a Sunday morning uh, in the summer of 2015 that he was found there by Kent police, <clears throat> wrapped in a blanket and given some food and social services called my mum and dad and told me that they'd found a, a young boy and did they want to take him on. Amazing. And it's so wonderful in many ways that your own, the path that life sort of took you on to, that became so immersed in this work also is mm. kind of sort of paralleled in some way with your parents and their journey to, or which they'd already kind of been thinking about to, to actually take in to their own home, to their own family. Um, these um, boys, you know, it's, it's, um, it's pretty amazing. It's wonderful. Actually, it's a great, it's a great, um, so nice to, uh, to see that happening, you know, um, Mm-hmm. I wonder, um, have you, I, when I was in my twenties, I became a monk and I sort of was on, I, I sort of, you know, sometimes people talk about it as a calling or a kind of a mission or, a, what else do they call it? Like, um, um, something that kind of becomes bigger than you and it's wonderful, but it also, so it can give you tremendous, uh, purpose in your life. But I think also sometimes you can, um, get lost in it as well so i wanted to ask you um to talk a little bit about that and you know do you think it's helped you to find yourself 
or is there an element as well where you then also can kind of lose yourself in that work where you're, you know, you maybe don't always look after yourself or you're, you're, you're sort of the mission comes first, if you like. What a beautiful question. And I'd love to hear more about your time as a monk. And absolutely, I think that this is 100% what I need to be doing with my life. I couldn't be doing anything else. But equally, absolutely, it takes an emotional toll. It's huge. It's difficult and painful. And I for sure have had moments like that first Christmas that I mentioned earlier when I felt like I had the weight of that on my shoulders and I didn't know how to carry it. I I felt it was huge and it was overwhelming and it was bigger than me and where's my role in this and what is my space in this? And I think at that time I really hadn't been putting practices into place or, or any kind of boundaries into place I went in with a very open heart and I continue to maintain those emotional connections and relationships with people in the work that I do because I feel like it's a really important part of the work that I do but I think I have got better at channeling those emotions into action and having outlets and and knowing where to direct them so be that through talking to people around me friends and family or professionals who you know actually are able to kind of help you process secondary trauma mm -hmm. and also to use this feeling in the work that I'm doing to let it inform what I'm creating on a day-to-day -day basis mm. but yeah, yeah it's, it's a constant it's a constant learning yeah it's interesting because like you know often doctors nurses teachers those those giving professions um there is a great risk of burnout you know and kind of of not um not um sort of giving yourself the same kindness and uh nurture as well um absolutely yeah tell us about some of the ways maybe that you're you're doing that for yourself better now or perhaps than you might have been before or, or what, what your journey has been like in that way for me i've recognized the self-care practices that i need to include within my day and again they look different for everyone but for me you know it's 10 minutes in the morning to take some time to breathe and meditate eating like what i'm eating just making sure that like i'm eating well and that i'm like actually giving myself nutri nutritious like brain food like just little things you know that for me a big release is my yoga practice and when that goes out of the window i, I feel it all kind of obvious uh cliche things <laughs> but i think boundaries are not not um feeling guilt recognizing that it's integral for me to be able to continue to serve or do anything or be of any use to actually make sure that i'm okay first and foremost because otherwise i'm useless to anybody and and recognizing that and so 
allowing myself those moments because mm. nobody else is going to. And at first I really felt like I wouldn't afford myself any kind of time or that that was a luxury that I didn't deserve it. That like, look what's going on around me and like, look at how, you know, it, other people are being forced to um, experience life. But I recognise my privilege, Ravenel, and I feel that, you know, it's my duty to do with that the best thing that I possibly can. Mm. Yeah, that's 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 um that's amazing. But it's it, it is hard. I, I find I've found it difficult over the years with boundaries. I've felt uh for a long time that bound, setting boundaries was a selfish thing. And I've realized I think mm-hmm. over the years that actually setting boundaries is uh is a kind thing because you're if you don't set boundaries things become messy you know and they like mm-hmm. they they seem it seems nice in the beginning it's all easy going and everything but then it can get messy you know if if there's a disagreement about things or whatever so having clear boundaries is actually um the best thing to do so I don't know. Have you have you found have, have you found it uh, hard in the beginning, or have you have you found that uh, it's helped you? I find boundaries hard in every aspect of my life. I think it's something that I need to continue to practice because inherently, I think I have a bit of kind of people pleaser within me, and that's the kind of way that I want to be and the way I want to kind of show up for people. And I do love to give people my all and my everything. And I want to work with that because I think that that's a strength in in some ways, but definitely a weakness as well. So, (laughs) yeah, I've got some work to do, constant practice to do there. But I think I've got better at just like knowing my limits, for example, you know, making sure that I allow myself time to sleep like this, this journey that we just did. I recognize that I've got better at making decisions when it comes to like flight times or travel days or, you know, where we're staying just to make sure that we and our little team had like comfort that we needed to show up yeah on a daily basis and that continues to be fairly humble I would say but yeah I think I've grown up over the years and I don't want to sleep on like the floors of uh airports anymore (laughs) this is not good for anyone the next day no and it's funny isn't it like in one sense it's sort of to some people might be such a simple thing just allowing enough time to stop and eat or you know, like say, allowing, you know, yourself, making sure you get enough rest. But I think um, for some of us, um, it's actually a whole learning curve just to do those things. Like I know with my team, yeah. when we'd be out filming and stuff, I'm, I'm much better now, but in the early days, um, I wouldn't really think about eating. So I would just also not think about them having to eat as well. But that's, you know what I mean? That's just not, <laughs> not kind of fair in a way, but um, it's funny, you know, just have to, as you, you know become what? more conscious. Well, mm-hmm, for sure. And I, I realized I was just recently on the Ukrainian border and there were some incredible volunteers that I spent some time with there and people that come from all over the world to give what they could to support people. And it was really beautiful to see, but it made me realize how far I have come because I recognized 
a former version of myself in some people there in the way that they were giving and it's beautiful you know I recognize that it comes from a place of like true um true like empathy but is it sustainable is it sustainable to Mm. you know sleep for an hour or two a night and to work yourself into the ground like it, it isn't and I know it isn't from experience <laughs> i've been there been, and i've done that and i reached my limit yeah 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 mm-hmm. and um uh how has it been for you like in terms of relationships uh, with that has it been kind of like i'm too busy uh, or have you managed to kind of fit in a personal life beyond so when people become especially big in the um in the media sense Sometimes we also define ourselves, well, whether we have a big role or not, by our work, you know. So, like, have you found time for the jazz who who isn't the the media personality who works in the refugee crisis and kind of your personal life? How, how have you managed to balance that with, um, with all the outward stuff that you do? I think there's a lot of overlap, to be honest, because my most important personal relationships are my family. And like I say, the boys and my little brothers, and Mm. they kind of inform what I do. And I kind of share authentically and from the heart externally as well on the podcast and on social media. So Mm. I think it's all kind of wrapped into one. I I was thinking kind of like, um, you know, like a romantic, you know, personal relationships um, time for that's just for you and maybe a, a partner um, or are you consumed by the work mostly mm. uh, how, how does it how does the, how's the balance been yeah no balance I think yeah is all good there in terms of personal relationships like I have beautiful relationships in my life with friends and family and loved ones that yeah I think that element as I say, connecting with people and connections and um, pe- people and being around people, like that's always been where my kind of initial skills or like wants and needs and desires lie. So, yeah, I don't think that there's an so issue So you've there. been, um, you get your energy from, from kind of um, people, right? exactly yeah that's what I was, that, that, that's what i was looking for <laughs> <laughs> well i suppose that that's what they they say isn't it that um uh again i know it's a bit binary but like that extroverts tend to get their energy from uh people and introverts more from from being with themselves how do you do you find that um you're you're equally happy on your own or would you always prefer to be around people always around people (laughs) yeah Yeah, it's good to be in such a big uh, vibrant family then so would you do it all again um is there anything you'd do differently no no I mean I would do it all again and I don't think there's anything I would do differently because I feel like everything that has happened has brought me to where I am now and the version of me might do things back then differently like the version of me now knows better but it's all been a part of it. Yeah, I heard a great explanation for this recently on another podcast, which was um, 
kind of like as you've said but um i wouldn't change anything because i only know the lessons i've learned today because of what's happened so if i went back and did it differently then then i might not have the wisdom from from some of those things you know um so exactly I think, I totally yeah agree. yeah um i would uh one last kind of thought before we go into the final bit that I just wanted to ask you about. I very much resonate with you in terms of that sense of, you know, and I've heard you say it on some other podcasts that we're all the same and on a human level, like on our humanity, and we're trying to get to the stories that make us feel connected. Um, but I just wonder if you share some thoughts on we are all the same, but we're also all different. And there's a lot of tensions or let's say different pulls within global politics at the moment where um, some countries are becoming, are focusing more again on the solidarity of the nation and, you know, the, the things that make us unique within a particular country or maybe even a race. Um, so it's just kind of like balancing those two components where we are all the same and we're also different as well. So I'd just love to hear any thoughts on that. Absolutely. So I think it would be more accurate to say that we are all connected, right? And that we are all human and we all live on this world together. Yeah. But absolutely, we're all different and unique. And those differences are to be celebrated because that's what's, what makes life so incredible and exciting that, you know, we all love to meet new people and well maybe we don't all but at least <laughs> I do love to meet new people and, me. <laughs> and eat new cuisines and you know like learn from people that are different from us and so I very much recognize that our in our work is just to celebrate those differences but to also recognize that underneath all of those kind of surface level things like nationality religion race language gender we're all human and we all have those basic human needs that we need love and we need a home and for the people around us and safety and security and food and you know like we know what they are and we all need those things we all desire those things we all have hopes and dreams and visions for the future and you know again it's touching on those things that connect us that we also really try to amplify within our work and we do that through music and sport and art and things that we all that don't need language that don't need um yeah yeah that we that we can kind of communicate on on a deeper level it's fascinating i think that it? was not pro probably not the most uh concise way to answer that question <laughs> no, no, it's a great way to answer it because it's it's also like in when when you know in a lot of work with young people rather than get straight to talking about the more serious stuff, it's it's often done through an almost like a triangle, you know, through sport or through art or through. So you're right, these these cultural mm -hmm. things that we all that all impact our lives are great ways to to open up conversations and to and to connect people. It's a really good point. Um and so just um we we have this kind of um thing we do at the end where I'll ask you to just have a say a sentence or two on these six big pillars of life, which I'll tell you in a minute. But before that, I'd love for people, if they're interested in your okay. work, just tell us briefly what, because you, you started this amazing uh, organization called the Worldwide Tribe and 
we've talked a little bit about it, but just tell us briefly where you're at with it now. What's your real main focus right now and how people could potentially connect with it if, if they're interested? Yes. So I've actually just come back from this incredible journey that I'm so grateful to have been able to make, which followed common migration routes from North Africa and from the Syrian border all the way back to Northern Europe. So we actually recorded podcast interviews along the way and we were recording the new season of our podcast, um, which is called The Journey. So the podcast is called Asylum Speakers, which I mentioned earlier, and this new season that goes live on World Refugee Day which is June 2020, is called The Journey. And it follows these common routes and you meet characters along the way. And we talk about themes like leaving home and what life looks like in the first safe country and what the journey looks like. And then also what life looks like once you make it to your host country and integration and then giving back and all sorts of really interesting themes from incredible people. So you can find that by looking up asylum speakers in any podcast app or anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. And you can find up-to-date information on our uh, Instagram account, which is at the Worldwide Tribe or type in the Worldwide Tribe onto Facebook and you'll see that we're posting quite regularly. And our website is theworldwidetribe.com so lots of places that you can find out more i would recommend the podcast yeah sounds exciting i'll have to tune in because um uh, as we were talking earlier you know how could people you know from the safety or from the comfort of their own environment start to you know where we started at the very beginning first of all educate themselves and then start having conversations with their friends and family and so on so by hearing from these actual people who are going through that whole experience at all different stages of their journey would be an amazing uh, place to start i think to to really try and understand these um, mm -hmm. topics better that's amazing great what an adventure to go on the routes and also what a wonderful thing to talk to the people and and share those conversations that's brilliant mm -hmm. um awesome so to finish up there's there's six things i'm going to say them you know one after the other they're basically like uh one one of the big things in life and i just love you to just whatever comes to mind share your thoughts on it uh what it means to you personally and um, the first one is money okay i'll do my best <laughs> oh money <laughs> important and not something to be scared of or um to i think i've had periods of time in my life where i've kind of felt like i almost avoid or like don't want to care about money but now i recognize that we live within a world where it's important yeah definitely um friends <clears throat> the best thing ever <laughs> yeah they've got me through everything and my friends are yeah I mean I'm so grateful to them for being there with me through all of the ups and downs and the roller coaster of life amazing um health again very very important I mean these are all I guess as you said like six important things in your life but yeah not to be taken for granted I guess your health to be celebrated every day yeah um love 
the core of everything. I think you can make decisions based in fear or based in love. And I would always advise myself when making a decision, you know, what would I do if I had no fear? Move towards love, you know, move towards love. Yeah, nice. Um, family. Uh, for me, my family, and I know that it doesn't necessarily look like this for everybody when it comes to like your biological family, but for me, family means beyond that. It's We've created a family here and I'm so grateful for that. And I feel like we, we can all do that, right? We can We can create our own family to look how we want it to. Yeah, I mean, I I couldn't do what I do without my little family unit. And I say little, it's not that little. There's eight kids in our, in our family now. <laughs> it's expensive at Christmas. <laughs> um, <laughs> and lastly, um, creativity. Oh, if I've been on a real journey with my creativity... And I feel that I've had to kind of unlock it a little bit because we move away from kind of creating from a inner free space as kids to having a lot of fear around doing so. So I've had to kind of get back to my kind of core inner artist. And I actually did that through a process called The Artist's Way quite recently, which I really enjoyed and I would recommend to anyone listening. Yeah, I've, I've heard about that. I, I'd, I'd like to check it out. I, I heard about a recent study where they asked educators and teachers, like, you know, what are some of the really important qualities that young people ha- should have? And they all said, you know, creativity was, was quite high. And then they said, tell us uh, your least favorite students in the class. And they picked certain students and they were all the, the creative ones. So they were saying that we all want creativity, but we reward conformity yeah you know and that's probably what makes it so yeah, afraid i'm gonna write that down because mm-hmm. um because creativity means ha- having the freedom to to be to sort of to not get it right straight away right mm-hmm. um just to finish i'd love you to love just that. say something about your parents if you would because um, I think, you know, you are this wonderful um, young person and, uh, you know, it sounds like your parents are pretty awesome as well. And I just, let me just say a few words about them. Well, the few words are that they're probably hungry right now because I said I'd make them some lunch and uh, <laughs> that was when my mum popped in earlier. Um, but yeah, they're awesome. And I think I learned from them a lot that patience and acceptance and that they are very yeah they're they're the two words that I'm kind of feeling from them at the moment true acceptance of us as we are and the celebration of that and that's a that's a beautiful thing right it's really beautiful it's it's really beautiful to be able to come here and, and truly feel that and I really believe that each of my siblings feels that too. Yeah, biological or otherwise. And that's another thing is that I recognize that 
my mum and dad have put themselves in that role of parents and that looks the same for each and every one of us I mean it doesn't look the same for each and every one of us because we're all unique but in terms of the love that they have it doesn't matter whether it's their biological child or not you know that love is infinite Mm -hmm. and it keeps with each (laughs) with each and every new child it extends to that child. Do you think that it's, um, I'm sure the answer would be yes, but do you think that uh, growing up experiencing that acceptance and that love has helped you to to sort of be able to give it to others? Yeah, I think, you know, whether that be from a caregiver, like a parent or whoever, that understanding of receiving unconditional love definitely enables you to recognize it and to give it yeah awesome thanks so much jazz for chatting i'm i'm um i'm looking forward to listening to the podcast and and following the journeys of the people you spoke to and the journey that you took and i I invite all our listeners to make sure they tune into that the um asylum speakers and the journey so definitely looking Mm. to, to to tune into that and thanks so much for chatting to me today Thank you, Ravana. It's so lovely to reconnect and have a lovely afternoon. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, If you enjoyed any of the things that we were talking about or you have bits that stood out for you or that you'd like to know more about or that even that you disagree with, please tag me and Jazz or the Worldwide uh, Tribe on social media and let us know what stood out for you. Uh, I look forward to chatting to you in the next episode. And in the meantime, have a great week.